Today we're going to talk about sharing our lives as we face Jerusalem with Jesus. I'll share a little bit of mine uh, for a moment. I, uh, and, I, and I've talked about this on many occasions that uh, I, I was uh, in, in the radio business for 20 years before this and was a musician before that. So, um, uh, it, you know, studying the Bible, uh, being a part of a church has not always been a part of my experience. And, and when I was in the radio business, particularly in Knoxville, and this, this, was, in, uh, this was in the late 80s and early 90s, and I had I worked at a radio station. It was called U102. It's Star 102.1 now. And um, I was the program director of that station. And of all the things that I was asked to do, and I was asked to do a lot of things. Some of them decorum prohibits me even describing here this morning uh, because it's radio. Uh, and I say this knowing that we have, have two prominent radio people in, in, uh, in the building right now. So I, I, speak, I speak carefully. Um, um, but I was asked by uh, a couple of our staff members because I was serving a church by then. This, was, this would have been 1993, and I had started serving a church, Dutch Valley United Methodist Church. We had 55 members. We had 55 in worship, and so that was pretty, it was a lot of fun. And they said, would you lead us in a Bible study? We had a lot of Christians in the, church, in the radio station. And I said, well, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And probably at least a third of the staff participated, which would have been 10 or 12 people of the full-time staff. So every Wednesday, we would gather in the conference room, and we would take our lunch in, and I would lead a Bible study. We'd work through a book of the Bible, typically. And even the ones that, that didn't participate were okay with it. Nobody gave us a hard time except for one. And we had this one employee that was just sure that we were going to sit in there in that conference room and we were going to judge six ways to Sunday everybody who wasn't in there. And we were going to drag them over the coals and we were going to make fun of them because that's what Christians do is that they give everybody who isn't a Christian a hard time. At least that's what she thought. And so, you know, we would come out of the Bible study and she would say, well, who did you rip a new one today? You know, or, or something like that. And we're like, well, well, nobody. We actually, we only talked about Jesus today. And so we started getting extra lunch so that even though she didn't join us, we wanted to offer her lunch. And she would stop me in the hallway and ask those kinds of questions that people will stop Christians and ask uh, because th they're not sure how to approach. And I remember one particular day in the hallway we passed and she said, so what about all the Buddhists? What are the Buddhists? Are they all the Buddhists going to hell? And I'm like, you know, I, I'm not a Buddhist, and, and I'm, I'm not super familiar, particularly at that point in my life, with their religion. I think Jesus loves everybody. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I think Jesus' will would be for everybody to be in blah, 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 something like that. But I tried to always keep a non-anxious presence and keep an even tone, and everybody did. And she couldn't goad anybody into an argument. And so we did that for several months, and then it kind of ran its course. And then I moved on and went to seminary and left the radio business. But I found out some years later that, and I should preface this by saying that her husband was literally a rocket scientist. He worked at Oak Ridge. She was very, very bright. Between the two of them, it's, it's, a, it's unknown what their IQ might have been. And I don't know if that played into all this or not, all that, you know, because some people seem to believe that if you, if you, if you believe in science and technology and you can't believe in God, and that's, that's just silly. We'll talk about that in a minute. But of course, of course you can. But at any rate, what I found out was that she went on 
to join a church. She and her husband, they had a little girl, and this is one of God's favorite tricks to play on people, is he likes, he likes to get them a kid and then go, your kid should be in church. <laughs> and he did that to Lynn and me. That's why I'm standing up here today, because we thought our, our first daughter, when she was three years old, ought to go to church. And uh, that's, that's what started the whole thing. So she did. And they wound up joining the church and were very active. And this person who was relating this to me, because I'd been gone from the station for a while, she said that she said something very interesting as they went to lunch one day and they were just talking about that, that Bible study and those days and whenever she was so antagonistic toward us. And she said this, she said, I couldn't make you be who I thought you were. And it just frustrated her. I couldn't make you be who I thought you were. And I think that may be the greatest compliment a believer in Jesus Christ could ever hear from someone who isn't. You know, that's why, that's why they were frustrated. That's why she was frustrated. That's why others get frustrated. Because they can't make Christians be who they think they are. And unfortunately, Christians have earned some of that bad reputation. And unfortunately, a lot of pastors, uh, particularly the ones that you might have seen back in the day on cable TV, uh, and, and the more higher, some of the higher profile pastors have kind of earned some of that from some of the less than loving things that we've all heard them say over the years. And I'm not here to disrespect anybody, but it's just true. And, uh, you know, sometimes, who, who was it? It was... Uh, was it Nietzsche who said, I, I think I like Jesus, but I don't like Christians? You him or Gandhi, somebody, some, some non-Christian figure at some point along the way said that. I love your Jesus. I don't like your Christians. And, you know, there's probably, probably some, some truth to that. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. What we're, talk, what we're here to talk about today is how we witness for Jesus in the world, because that's what we're called to do. As we continue the sermon series, Facing Jerusalem, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross, ultimately. And he has all these encounters with people along the way. And today, he has an encounter with some Pharisees, and we'll talk about them in a minute. And they have been a threat to him all throughout his ministry. And there are others who have. And he faced threats from other people, his mission. And so, you know, we're not called to go to a cross. And, and we're not called um, to do exactly what Jesus did. But we are called to love and to carry on that mission of spreading his love into the world. And so it only stands to reason that we will probably be threatened along the way too. Maybe not with our life like Jesus was, but certainly our beliefs will be threatened and sometimes our integrity may be threatened. So what do we do? How do we refute that? Because I'm not, you know, Christian apologetics is a, is a whole way of, of being able to to uh, form your faith into words and sentences and be able to describe your faith and, and debate your faith with others. And I'm terrible at that. Um, so, and, and I think a lot of people don't really want to get into to that kind of argument. And let's face it, Jesus wouldn't have. Jesus never did that. And we cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. But we can love them right up to the gate. 
That's what Jesus did. He never argued with any. Well, I'll take that back. Occasionally he got into arguments or he got angry with the Pharisees. They were the religious professionals. And it's never lost on me that the only people Jesus ever really got mad at were the preachers. So, you know, that's always there in the back of your mind uh, when you start trying to do anything or say anything on his behalf. So what I want to do is look at a passage of Scripture and see if we can pull from that a couple of things to encourage us to not be afraid to share our faith. And that is to share what we know to be true with other people. So let's talk about it. Let's uh, pick up in Luke's gospel as Jesus continues this journey. Remember, it started back earlier in Luke whenever it says he turned his face toward Jerusalem. And that's, such, that's the fulcrum that the whole gospel hinges on because he, that's when he made the decision, all right, from now on, we're heading for Jerusalem. I don't know what's coming. We're heading for the cross and we're going to do all the good we can along the way. And then we're going to do the ultimate good the universe has ever known on the cross. So let me read from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 30, 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for these written words. Your written word always reveals to us your living word who is Jesus the Christ. God, give us boldness by the power of your spirit to see where we are in this story, to see how we are to live our life in a way that witnesses to your son, our savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's talk about Pharisees just a little bit more. As I mentioned Pharisees were, they were, uh, there was a, a kind of a hierarchy or certainly a, 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 a different classes of, of Jewish people in Jesus' day. And there were the scribes. We hear them talked about. We think of them as, as lawyers. They were the ones who were experts in the law and interpreting the law. There were Sadducees, and I know for some of you, you're going to go, oh, you tell this every time. But there are Sadducees, and that was another class of Jewish people. And the difference in Sadducees and the others is they did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. It gets a little bit less of a laugh every time, sorry, but I just have to do it. That's compliments of the very first, my first preacher when I was at Middlebrook Pike United Methodist Church, the Reverend Doug Smith, he told that in the Disciple Bible Study, and I just thought that was so clever. So Doug, that's for you, buddy. Actually, he's not dead. Why am I looking up? He, he, he may be back there somewhere. I don't know where Doug is. So, so anyway, so the Pharisees, they were the ones who tried to keep the law. Uh, their job was to keep every word of the law and to represent that to others and to show others that they can keep the law too. They were kind of the, the law police, if you will. And um, 
they, Jesus really <laughs> railed on them from time to time because he claimed that they, and, and I'm sure it was true, uh, th- that they wanted the most prominent place at the tables to eat. They, they wanted people to, to defer to them on the sidewalk. I mean, they didn't have sidewalks, let's face it. But on the street, you know, get out of my way. I'm a Pharisee in my flowing robes and, and all that stuff. And, and they were all that and a bag of chips and, and, and some hummus to go with. It's probably what they would have had in those days. But I digress. The, the, the Pharisees, Jesus had a real problem with. So here's the question. Why did they seem to want to help him? Uh, most of the Pharisees were after him. But it says they were telling him, you need to leave and go someplace else. Herod wants to kill you. We'll talk about Herod in a minute. And, you know, th- he did go eat in some Pharisees' homes. It, it didn't end well because he would always just tell them the truth, which was the last thing they wanted to hear, which is the point I want to make in a minute. So were they trying to help him? Eh, I don't know. You know, maybe they just thought this would be a good way to get rid of him. Hey, Jesus, you know, because they tried every other way. Hey, Jesus, why don't you just leave? Because Harry's going to try to kill you. But, but of course, Jesus wouldn't. And the, pr- the whole problem with the Pharisees and their antagonistic relationship with Jesus is that they wanted to hang on to their comfortable frame of reference of worshiping God, and that was the law. They wanted to keep the law, jot and tittle, which is exclamation point and colon, those are just punctuation marks. They wanted to keep it that way. That was the way they worshiped. That was the way they understood their relationship with God. That was their frame of reference. That's where they were coming from. And they couldn't understand where Jesus was coming from. And so they, it, it was a stretch for them to believe it. So Jesus had to do something different. Give you an example. How many people uh, before Thursday had ever heard of Fairleigh Dickinson University? You know, we had one and th- okay, there we go. There's hardcore bad. Are you? Did you go to school there? It's up in the corner of New Jersey. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was established by uh, a, a military man whose name was Fairleigh Dickinson, and that's where the name came from. He was, I think, the one who gave the initial money to start the, the university. But, but the most important thing is, is that prior to this year, uh, well, l- last year, you know basketball games, Fairleigh Dickinson University won last year? Four. They won four. Their coach, Tobin Anderson, had coached the previous nine years in Division II at Thomas Aquinas University, I think it's called, itty-bitty school. And there he perfected this system of basketball where he takes these little guys. And that's another thing. Fairleigh Dickinson University has the shortest men's basketball team of all the 200 and some odd uh, NCAA Division I teams. He has the smallest one. Their biggest guy, I think, is 6'1". And they were going to play Purdue, whose biggest guy is 7'4". And all of them are big. And so they're the 16 seed. They didn't win their conference tournament. They didn't win their conference championship. They kind of snuck in. But there they were. They won a play-in game. And that's what got them their opportunity to play Purdue. And if, and if Tobin Anderson, their coach, had to come up to you and said, you know what's going to happen? We're going to play Purdue. 16 going to take on the number one seed. And we're going to beat him, and here's how. And he's going to describe this system where they just create mayhem on the court. Uh, very, very aggressive defense, and uh, their, their guards are so fast, they get to the basket lightning quick. Uh, and that, that was his style that he had perfected. And so he tells you that, and you go, 
That's nice. I mean, who's, who's going to believe that? It sounds like crazy because we don't know where he's coming from. But he's coming from nine years at his previous stop perfecting this, this style of basketball. That's where he was coming from. And he knew where his players were coming from. They believed in him. And the last thing he said to them before they went out on the court to play Purdue was, guys, we can beat these guys. I know we can. I've shown you how. We can win this game. The rest is history. My son-in-law graduated from Purdue. He did not play basketball there. He is a basketball player, an avid basketball fan. I texted him yesterday just to, and asked him, are you able to take nourishment yet? <laughs> because that, that, was, that was tough. But number one fell like a giant redwood in the forest, and number 16 stood on top of it. Uh, with a victory. Unbelievable. Who would have believed that? Nobody, because we couldn't enter their frame of reference. Nobody knew where they were coming from. So they just showed it. They just showed the world. They showed everybody how good they were. They didn't talk about it. They just went out on the court and they did it. And this is how we managed to, to take on these, these people who may intimidate us um, you know, we can try to argue with them. I don't think it's ever going to work. Jesus never did that. But when people don't understand where we're coming from, take them there. Don't just tell them about it. Don't show them on a map. Take them there. Tell them. Share your life. Let them know why you believe what you believe. Because there's nothing anyone can really say against that. So, that's the Pharisees. Well, let's talk about Herod for just a minute. Jesus called him a fox, and, and he really wasn't disrespecting him, in him with some kind of a slanderous word. It was really more, that word the Bible generally means insignificant. It did in the Old Testament. Jesus was a student of the Old Testament. But Herod, if you'll remember, there was a, a Herod who uh, wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys because he had heard about this baby being born in Bethlehem from the wise men, the Magi, uh, that was going to be this the king. He was going to be this new king because that's always what that big star meant. And he was jealous and he wanted to get rid of him. That Herod. And so he still wants to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus isn't afraid of him because he doesn't have any power. Calling him a fox was his way of saying, the guy can't do anything to me. Because I'm down here operating, I'm, I'm living out my calling. From before the foundations of the earth, we knew that we were going to have this race of people on the earth called human beings, and they were going to make bad choices, and they were going to fall and be out of relationship with God. Jesus being, of course, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They were going to fall out of relationship, and we had to find a way to bring them back, and I'm on the mission now. I'm here to do that. I'm going to to bring them back. And I've been anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that can stop me because I am called and I'm equipped. I'm on point and I'm not stopping. That's what that business about. I'm here today, here tomorrow, and on the third day I'll be finished. That was just the way him talking about the rest of his ministry. That third day he would be resurrected and the whole thing would, would be revealed uh, forever and ever. 
He wasn't afraid because he had the power. And we don't need to be afraid because we have the power as well. And, and our mission gets threatened sometimes uh, by a culture that wants to redefine us, just like the person at the radio station wanted to redefine us according to who she thought we were. Uh, the, the culture will want to try to do that to us as well. But there's no power for that. There's no power to redefine who someone really is and how you really live your life. It can't happen. We don't have to be afraid of it. And so whenever we go about living our life, knowing that our ultimate purpose is to reveal Jesus when we're at work or if we're at school or if we're retired, if we're at Walmart or at the gym, no matter where we are, no matter what we do, we have power to fulfill our purpose in the world. And then that makes, that makes everything richer and more beautiful when we know that no matter what we're doing in life, we have an opportunity with a coworker or somebody we go to school with or, or a gym buddy, whoever it may be. We have an opportunity to share our life with them because here's the deal. It's your responsibility and mine. You know, Jesus left this, Jesus left the mission in our hands. There's no one else to do it. It's like the old uh, uh, thing that, that I think this was on the, it's probably in a lot of locker rooms. I know it was in the locker room uh, at, at, at Tennessee in the football team. There was a, a poster that said, if it's to be, it's up to me. And that was the way they were to approach the game. Don't wait for somebody else. That's our responsibility. And it's beautiful whenever you can make that witness to someone. But we have the power to do that. Power for living flows from purpose for living. And we have the same purpose and the same power that Jesus had. And any of those foxes out there can't stand against it. Uh, one more thing. Jesus talked about Jerusalem. And Everybody in Jerusalem wasn't bad, okay? When Jesus spoke of Jerusalem, he was talking about this again. <laughs> the religious professionals, the power elite, the ones who were after him because he had upset their apple cart. He had, he had they didn't know where he was coming from. Their, their whole context for doing what they did was being turned upside down. That's who he was talking about. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's going to be bad. When he talks about even today your house will be in desolation, he was kind of prophesying a little bit because the temple would be, would be torn down. It would. For the second time, the temple would be eventually be torn down. But there's this beautiful sense of hope in there as well. Because these are the very people that were after him. And he says, why do you always want to kill the people that come to you? And he was speaking to, why do you come to these prophets that want to give you this new word from God and you keep turning them away? And yet he says, but, but I would wrap my arms around you like a hen wraps her arms around her chicks. You know what that means is he loves them. He still loves them. He loved those Pharisees. He loved Herod. He loved them. And remember, we're talking about love being a verb, not a noun. I'm sure he didn't have a warm, fuzzy feeling for Herod or some of those Pharisees. There have been plenty of times he didn't have a warm, fuzzy feeling for me either. But as an act of his will, he loved them. And Jesus, when he talks about love, it's almost always a verb. It's something we choose to do. And so he continued to love them, wanting them to find salvation just like everybody else. He put it out there for everybody. But that's, but that's not always easy. And we can't make them do anything. We can't make 
people respond to us. And that's and that should be liberating to you and me. It's not my job, it's not your job to get someone down here to this altar. Now hopefully, after you have shared in your, your faith with them, have, have witnessed to what's true in your life, that may happen. But whenever we're in the process of trying to share our life with somebody else, we don't need to be worried about, oh gosh, I hope, they, I hope they're saved. I hope they come and they find Jesus and they're baptized. I mean, we may hope that for them. But if we think that's our job, we may decide we can't do it. Because it's too much. That's the Holy Spirit's job is to get them down here to the altar. Your job is to put it out there in front of them. We're not called to tell people what we think. We're called to share what we know. And remember, we don't argue with them into the kingdom. We can love them right up to the gate. And it's all about love. And it's simply living our life moment by moment, day by day, out of the power of the Holy Spirit, so that the goodness of Christ will be revealed. And I don't care how young or old, big or little, educated or not formally educated, it, none of that matters at all. Now, the more scripture we know, the more confident we may feel, and, and it may inform the way we share our story. But that ultimately not, is not what it's up to. It's up to us allowing the Holy Spirit to just work through us and who we are and let that change people. The first church I served, that little Dutch Valley church, there was a woman there. Her name was Grandma Annie. She's long, long, long gone now. She was 95 then, I believe. And that was in 1993 when I started serving that church. That was my very first church. And, you know, that first sermon was coming up and I was so excited and I had picked out three hymns that perfectly matched the, the text of, of my sermon. And I printed out on my word processor and y'all can Google that. I know you're going, word processor, what is that? You can look it up. It's, uh, you know, it had a crank on the side of it like this. Anyway, um, had a word, you know, I had this little order of worship. I had one for me and one for the piano player. I'd heard about Grandma Annie, hadn't met her. And so I walk in for that first, that first sermon on that first Sunday, and there's Grandma Annie. She's about this tall. And she was 95 years old, and I think she probably had one pound of body weight for every year. She was just this tiny little slight wisp of a woman, and her fingers were just curled under like that, you know, with arthritis. And her eyes were squinty through her glasses, and she's just delightful. Um, and she was the piano player. So I, she was sitting at the piano and I put my little order of worship in front of her and she looked up and she said, I don't know that one. I don't know that one. I don't know that one. I said, Grandma Annie, I'll tell you what, you pick out your favorite hymns and I, and I knew, I knew that whether the text of that hymn went with my sermon or not, her hunched over that piano playing with those curled arthritic fingers, 
that was the sermon. There was nothing that wouldn't go with that. And she would play, tell me the stories of Jesus with her. And, and she, probably, she probably played about half, maybe a third or half the notes that were on the page. I don't think she was even looking at the book. She was playing from this heart she had for Jesus that had, that had carried her through her 95 years. And that was her way of witnessing to him. And it wasn't perfect, but it was beautiful. And I still am moved when I think about her to this day. She inspired me because of her faith and her willingness to, to just share that with anybody who walked in the doors of that church. That's our calling. That's what we're supposed to do. Because here's the deal. A life well-lived is irrefutable evidence of the power of Jesus to change lives. Nobody can argue against that. There's no argument. There's no apologetics. There's nothing anyone can say to Grandma Annie that says, I don't believe Jesus is real. Are you kidding me? She's real. She was living in him. And, 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 and he was on the bench next to her. And the same is true for you and me. No one can say that didn't happen to you. No one can say Jesus hasn't changed your life if you just reveal to them how he did. And think of the impact it can make. I've never in a million years thought my coworker at the radio station would ever find herself in a church. But she and her husband and their little girl wound up at Middlebrook Pike United Methodist Church and got very involved. I have no idea where they are now. That's been, a, that's been some years ago, 30 years ago now. Um, so I don't know. I only hope the best for them and pray the best for them. But, but again, it, you, our job is not, to, is not to get someone on their knees in the moment. Now, that, that may happen. But if it doesn't, we didn't fail. We're called not to tell people what we think, to share what we know and let the power of the Holy Spirit start putting things together and connecting the dots and letting people then see where we're coming from as where we're coming from is a journey to Jerusalem with a Savior who loves them just like he loves you and me and he doesn't want to fuss at them he wants to love them right through that gate and right into the kingdom Amen? Amen? Can we pray together? Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for loving us, Lord, for, for not giving up on us, but in your frustration with us sometimes, just opening your arms like that hen to her chicks and saying, please, just, just come on in. And, and we, thank, we thank your Father every day that, that we did. And here we are. And Lord, we just want to do our best for you to help others find this grace that we have found. Help us to be bold. Help us to be authentic. Help us to speak with integrity and to share from our heart. And we'll let you take that and do with it what you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Concord United Methodist Church. This podcast is a ministry of Concord United and we would love to hear from you. To contact us, please send an email to podcasts at concordunited.org with sermons in the subject line. For more information about Concord United, including worship times, service opportunities, mission efforts, and classes, please visit our website at concordunited.org. We also invite you to download and enjoy our daily devotional podcasts presented by the pastors and members of Concord United. Finally, we would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review of this podcast so that others can discover it and benefit from it.